Okay, last week we started in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to do verses 1 through 6, and uh, we only finished verse 1, you know, the Lord had a different plan, and we had a wonderful time talking about the fact that the church is like an emergency room. Today it is literally in the sense that we're all here sick, but spiritually the church is like an emergency room that we come in and we're sick with the disease of sin and self, and all these things that plague us. And this is the place where people ought to come to find healing. And so we find around Jesus and in the church, as we did in that day, the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax gatherers. And we learned what that meant in the first century and so on and so forth. And we talked about how it's sort of ironic that people look at the church and they say, what a bunch of hypocrites. We're not hypocrites per se. Hypocrites are those who pretend to be one thing that they're not. We know that we are wretched sinners, and that is why we've come to Jesus Christ. That's why we come to church, because we come and say, Lord, we're all messed up. We're all jacked up. I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff that I don't want to do. And Lord, you don't want me to do, and I want to be delivered from these things. And God, I want you to work in my life. And so we come in, and God begins a work of sanctification. And we're going to talk in just a few minutes what sanctification means. But it is that process whereby God takes us from where he found us, just a wretched sinner. The Bible declares that each one of us, even our righteous deeds, are as filthy rags before God, where he takes us as he found us, but loving us too much to leave us there, he begins to transform our lives. God plays a role in that, but you and I also play a role in that. And this morning we're going to see that pictured here in our text as we start in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Rise, and come over here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees won out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Here's the scene. Jesus walks into the synagogue once again. It's a situation very much like this. God's people gathered together to come and worship him. Other people just seeking, other people curious. Nonetheless, a bunch of people gathered together. Jesus is in their midst. And there is this man who no doubt in the community of Capernaum was well known. He had a problem. His hand had been withered presumably for life. It was shriveled up. It wasn't right. It was crippled. It was not working. And Jesus calls the guy out in the midst of the congregation because he knew that the stuffy religious leaders were watching to see what he would do. You see, according to their law, you, didn't, you weren't allowed to heal or to do any medical work on the Sabbath. God had said regarding the Sabbath, and for the Jews it was Saturday, God had said regarding the Sabbath that it was to be holy. And that's all he said. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You shall do no work on that day. But people, you know how they get. They get so religious and God says a few simple things and we begin to add to it and make it complex and make it burdensome and God never meant it to be so. He simply said, take a day of rest. Gee whiz, even I created the world in six days and on the seventh day I rested. And so he created the Sabbath telling man to rest and enjoy his presence on that day and to do no work. Aren't you glad that God said that? Take a day off. 
It's weird that God needs to tell us that. We're so weird in our humanity. We're so antsy. We're so, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go, that God's got to command us to rest sometimes. I love that our God likes us to just kick back and enjoy him. I wish it was more than just one day a week. But the Lord said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so they begin to add all these regulations. Okay, well, what does that mean for us? Keep it holy and do no work. Well, we think you can only walk so far, and we don't think you could prepare a meal, and we don't think you could do this, and we don't think you could do that. They would gather their food for the Sabbath the day before. And in early uh, uh, Jewish writings, the Midrash, it says this, Sabbath regulations could only be amended in cases of endangerment of life. That is to say... You could only give a person medical intention, attention if their life was in danger. You were allowed to do some preventative medicine on the Sabbath, according to the Jews who added to God's laws, but you weren't allowed to take measures to cure somebody, just some preventative measures. So, you know, if somebody cut off their arm on the Sabbath, all you could do is kind of put the tourniquet on there and that's about it. No real attention until the day after. See how that defeats the whole purpose of God? That's so dumb. We get so dumb in our religion. God's intent is that we would know him and love him and enjoy him. That is so simple. It is so freeing, but we get so weird and religious. And so many times we make church and we make church life what it was never meant to be. We make it a bummer and we make it sad. I get thoroughly upset. Every Sunday morning when I see people come in here looking like they're going to a funeral, I don't understand that. Listen, friends. We have been saved from the bondage of sin and death. Our God had no reason whatsoever to have anything to do with us. We have rejected him, all of humanity, from the beginning. But because of his love, he pursued us and saved us. He's redeemed us and he's given us the gift of eternal life. And so we come in here to celebrate that freely. Not hindered, not according to religion, but according to a love relationship. So I just want to tell you, congregation, get a smile on your face. It was Nietzsche, the German philosopher, some dead guy, who said to the church, if you are the redeemed, I wish your faces would show it. You know what I mean? I don't think we have an understanding of what it means that God became flesh and dwelt among us and came to save us and redeem us and give us new life. Sometimes I think that Well, never mind what I think. I don't want to say that. I just wish we would come in here like we sometimes go to a rock concert or a Lakers game. Man, people at the Lakers game, they take off their clothes and they paint themselves different colors. You know, and someone makes a basket and you see the guys on TV, ah, 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 and they're naked and they're jumping around and they're spilling stuff and they're screaming and they're yelling, ah. Morons. But they get more excited about the Lakers than we do Jesus Christ. I do not understand that. I will say in front of all of us this morning that that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. If you get more excited about the Lakers than you do Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, fine. Be excited about the Lakers. I wish you'd come to know Jesus Christ. You'll be infinitely more excited. But if you're a Christian, gee whiz, don't be religious. Be happy. You've been set free. 
But here's these religious Pharisees this day, and they're watching Jesus. Jesus tells the guy with the withered hand to stand up, and they say, okay, now what is he going to do? Our rules say that he better not heal that guy today. Oh, Jesus, you better not step out of line in church. By now, Jesus' reputation was getting a little bit messy. In chapter 1, they accused him of blasphemy because he forgave the man's sins. You remember that, the paralytic. So he forgave the man's sins, so they called him a blasphemy. Later on in chapter 2, we see him hanging out with Matthew, the tax collector, and the drunkards in the sinners. He's there hanging out with them, having a meal with them, loving on them. So they accuse him of being the friend of sinners, and so he is. Jesus is the best friend we sinners have ever had. Later on, he wasn't following the fasting regulations and Sabbath regulations, and they called him a Sabbath breaker, which according to Jewish law, you were to be cut off from your people. So in every way, Jesus has been offensive to the religious people. And now they say, wow, He better not heal this guy on the Sabbath. That just is not kosher. That is not cool. Now, here's what's interesting. It says in verse 2, And they were watching him in order to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Not if he could heal him. If he would heal him, they knew that Jesus had power to heal. They knew he had power to set free. And they just wanted to see if he would do it this day. Why is it that they often had more faith than so many of us Christians? I don't understand that. They knew that Jesus was able to heal. And yet we often come in doubting. Let me tell you, the Bible is real. The Bible is, in true, is true. The way that it is written is the way that it is. The things that God does in the Bible, God is able and frequently does today. The way that it was in the book of Acts, so it ought to be in our church today. But it takes faith to believe that the Lord can do these things. And even these who were looking to take his life from him believed that he could do it. And so Jesus says, all right, well, I'll show you. He says to the man, get up and come forward. And then he says in verse 5, and after looking around at them, angered and grieved at their hardness of heart, at their religiosity, at all that they had made it to be. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored. I want you to notice what took place there. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, which had been presumably for his whole life withered. Now, at the moment Jesus said that, the man simply could have said, well, what are you talking about, Lord? I've never stretched forth my hand. It's always been withered like this. What are you talking about? Stretch forth my hand. Jesus did not come and grab his hand and yank it forward and slap it around or anything like that. He told the man, you've got to do it. At that moment, he could have said, I've never done it. I've never been able to do this. I've never stretched forth my hand. Why are you embarrassing me in front of all these people? I've never been able to do what you're asking me to do. But instead of that, He went ahead and in obedience went to stretch forth his hand. And when he responded in obedience, at that moment he was healed. Do you see the picture? We see the same picture with the 10 lepers that came to Jesus and said, Jesus, heal us. And he said, okay, now go away and show yourself to the priest. They had not yet been healed, but he said, go and show yourself to the priest as if they had been healed. And it wasn't until they left in obedience, not yet healed, not seeing what Jesus would do, not understanding what Jesus would do, simply obeying what Jesus said as they went on their way, then they were healed. Listen, friends, the blessing of God comes through obedience. Jesus said, do it and then you will experience the fullness of power. 
I uh, do the college ministry at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, as you guys know. And so college, you know, kids fresh out of high school and kids getting on fire for Jesus and wanting to walk with the Lord and kids that have girlfriends and girls that have boyfriends. And so purity becomes a big issue as it is in many of our lives. And yet they're beginning to understand what God calls them to and they're wanting to walk in holiness and in purity. And they say, oh, we just can't do it. Man, we just keep falling into that same sin over and over again. And so I say, well, you know, what do you, when does this happen? I mean, you guys just at Starbucks? And what, what are you doing? Oh, no, man, we drive up to Thunderbolt and we park the car up there and then we crawl in the back seat, you know, and, and we got a Barry White and Marvin Gaye playing on the stereo. And then, I don't know, right then I start praying, oh, Lord, keep me from temptation. But I, at that point, I'm just overcome. All I could do is look at him and say, you're stupid. Wait a minute, back up. You get in the back seat, you put on the Barry White and the Marvin Gaye, and then you pray? No, man, you need to stay out the back seat. You need to be obedient to God who says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue faithlessness, oh, faithlessness, <laughs> faithfulness, peace, hope, and love with those who call upon the Lord of the pure hearts. Flee from youthful lusts. See, when we obey Jesus in the first things, then the blessings and the power come. For the person who struggles with alcohol and they're holding the drink in their hand and they're saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, give me strength. Not until they reach out and put the bottle down and take their hand off do they realize that God has given them the strength. God has given them the power. It is not until you exercise the faith that the power becomes a reality. You could sit around all day long and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit and the power to resist temptation, but until you reach out in obedience, then you realize, oh my goodness, I have the power. And when the man stretched forth his hand, he realized, oh my goodness, Jesus is able and willing and he did heal me. But I'm so sad for the person who forever remains there with their hand withered, choosing to remain in misery because they're not willing to exercise that faith and to stretch forth their hand. Now, I see in here an amazing lesson. I see in this story about the man who had to stretch forth his hand a lesson about sanctification. Sanctification, a big Bible word. Let's see what it means. Sanctification, in the Greek, it's hagiosmos, which means separation or a setting apart. The Hebrew equivalent is kodesh, which is the Hebrew word for holy. The idea of sanctification is the separation from the secular or sinful and a setting apart to a sacred purpose. The separation from the mundane, from the sinful, from the secular, and a setting apart to the things of God, sanctification. The idea is that you are holy. To be sanctified is to be holy. And so there is here in this story a picture of sanctification. And we're going to talk for a few minutes exactly how sanctification works out in our lives. There are three stages of sanctification that you should be aware of. Firstly, there is positional sanctification. And then practical sanctification 
And then final sanctification. Final is the one that I get most excited about. That is when we die and go to heaven. And there we are in the presence of the Lord, free from this sinful body forever. Hooray, 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 amen. Final sanctification. But we're not going to talk about this this morning. We're going to talk about the first two, positional and practical sanctification, and how they relate to our story today. What is positional sanctification? It is to say that the moment you became a Christian, your identity was changed. Your identity. That is, you were no longer your own. You had been bought with a price. You now belong to Jesus Christ. And the Bible declares in Ephesians chapter 1 that you are now seated with him in the heavenlies positionally and that you are now in Christ, that you have an identity that is mingled with him. You are in him. You are not your own. The life you now live, you live by faith unto him. Your identity is now a child of the most high God. You have a total change in your identity. It's positional. It has nothing to do yet with your actions. It's got nothing to do yet with the daily things that you do and don't do. It is positional. You are placed in the heavenlies with Christ, guaranteed eternal life. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians as we see this work out. The book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians... Chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice it's in past tense, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints or holy ones by calling. Look now in verse 30 of the same chapter. But by his doing, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We are told here that as Christians, we are in Christ Jesus and we have been sanctified. Paul wrote it to the Corinthians in past tense. He called them holy ones. Now, this has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian, how short you've been a Christian. It has nothing to do with what you do and what you don't do. Positionally, every Christian has been sanctified, set apart to God. This is amazing that Paul called the Corinthians holy ones because if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, they were horrible. If ever there was a messed up, jacked up, sloppy, messy, sinful church, it was a church in Corinth. In Corinth, he calls them in chapter 3, verse 1, men of the flesh. He says, you guys, I don't even want to call you Christians anymore. I'm calling you men of the flesh. You are so carnal. We learn that they were quarrelsome, that they were arrogant, that they tolerated sexual immorality within their midst, that someone was sleeping with their father's wife, and they just figured, oh, well, no big deal. Paul had to write to them and said, hey, deal with this, boneheads. This is a big deal. We find out that they were continually... Um, suing one another and that they lacked love and even that they were getting drunk at the communion service. Can you imagine that church? That was a messed up church. And yet, Paul said, 
you have been sanctified. He said to them, you are in Christ. Indeed, he called them holy ones. That's the amazing thing about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, and his death upon the cross and his resurrection, that though we are wicked and sinful, we can be declared holy and righteous, to be sanctified, to have a total change of identity. That's amazing. Look now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we see it further played out. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. You see why I get so upset when people come into church like it's a funeral? And such were some of you. Such was me. Such were we. But we were washed, but we were sanctified, but we were justified. Some of them were still living these lifestyles, but Paul declared to them, you have had a change of identity. And though you may have come to Christ an adulterer or a drunker or whatever it was, you have had a change of identity and now you're called a son of the Most High God. That doesn't turn you on. You don't have a switch. There's something wrong with you. What also happens at the moment of salvation, not only are we positionally sanctified, but there is a beginning of a practical aspect of sanctification. There is a beginning of not just the change of identity, but now we have a change of nature. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 declares, Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. So when we're born again, it is not only a change in our identity that we are identified with Christ, in Christ, but it is a change in our nature. We have the initial break with sin that now starts a long and winding road known as practical sanctification. Do you remember being born again? Do you remember that you tried to do the same old stuff that you used to do and it just wasn't fun like it used to be? Amen. You were partying, you were doing thus and so, and then you got saved, and you're like, what? I've been forgiven. This is amazing. This is wonderful. This is awesome. Man, I'm going to go to that party tonight. I'm going to do that stuff. And you go to the party, and you're trying to have fun. You're like, man, there's something wrong. I'm not having fun like this. I don't. Hey, man, try this. Okay. No, I don't want to try. No, I do want to. No, I don't want that. Wait, I want. What? What's going on? And there begins this change from the inside. It doesn't happen overnight, but God begins to change our desires and our wants. I remember craving alcohol. I remember craving marijuana. I remember craving all these things. And one by one, God began to set me free. And pretty soon, I didn't want it anymore. As a Christian, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I could drink and smoke as much as I want to, but you know what? I don't want to. And that's not me. That's God in me. Man, I'm jacked up. You know me. I'm messed up. That's God in me. Amen. 
So we begin to experience a change in nature. God begins to change us from the inside out, and we make a break from the power of sin. Turn now to Romans chapter 5. We've got to see it. Romans is four before 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 5. Look at these amazing verses, starting in Romans 5, verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the Old Testament here, it says, lets us know that we are sinners. But where we realize that we are sinners, we realize even more that there is the grace of God, that we no longer have to endure the penalty of death, but the promise of eternal life. And so Paul says here then in chapter 6, verse 1, what do we do then? Or what shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, if the more we sin, the more grace God gives us, then should we just continue to sin? That seems to be a valid question for the Christian. You mean I've been forgiven? You mean when I sin, he'll forgive me again? What about if I sin in a week? Will he forgive me? He'll forgive you. What about if I sin in 10 years? Is he going to forgive me? He's going to forgive you. What about if I sin today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day? Is he going to forgive me? He's going to forgive you. Well, then why don't I just continue to sin if he's going to forgive me? And that's what Paul says there. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? And then Paul says in chapter 6, verse 2, may it never be. Because, as he's going to explain, we have a brand new nature. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united or identified with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? He's saying, may it never be that we would just continue to sin because God will forgive us. We have a brand new nature. The old man has died, he declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and all things have become brand new. We are a brand new creation. You are a brand new woman in Christ Jesus. You are a brand new man in Christ Jesus. And so, how should we live in sin if the old man who was alive to sin is now dead? What does a dead man do? Are you sure about that? You guys seem confused. It's not tricky. What does a dead man do? Man, he don't do nothing. The dead man don't do nothing. You could come up to a dead man and you could offer him anything you want. If Dave was dead right now, oh, Dave, don't you want this? Look at this carnitas burrito from Rincon Alteño. Dave, look, it's free, man. Here's salsa. Here's lime. Here's some chips. Here's some nachos. Dave, don't you want it? It's got no power over him. He's dead. See, he's alive right now. If I bring a burrito right now, he'd eat in front of everybody. 
It's on for him. But if he's dead, the man doesn't care. It has no power over him. Listen to me, Christians. The Bible has declared that if you've been born again, you are dead to sin. The old you is gone, wiped away, done with, dead and buried, and you've been risen to new life. So sin is no longer a master over you. Sin no longer has power over you. How can it have power over he who is dead, Paul says? And so that is why we don't just continue to sin, but we allow God to change our lives because sin no longer has power over us. We have power over sin by the Holy Spirit in us. Amen. Glory to God. We used to be a slave to sin. If you don't think you're a slave to sin, you're a fool. We've been given a brand new nature and now we're able to be slaves to righteousness. Sin no longer has power over us. Look at verse 17 of Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that, through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now that is a work of God that he and he alone does in you. It is the work of God that he accomplishes. You don't have to do anything except for ask him to forgive you of your sins and make you a brand new creation to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. He accomplishes that work. Look at 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. So it is God who does that sanctifying work. Next in Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of our eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Look what it says. Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working his work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Isn't it good to know that all we need to do is abide in Christ And he does that amazing work of transforming our lives. Carpinteria is famous for avocados. We have the avocado festival every year. You can walk by the avocado orchards that are all over Carpinteria at the time when the avocados are coming out. I don't know when that is. I should probably know that. Born and raised. October? You can walk by the avocado orchards in October and you're never going to see or hear the trees straining to produce fruit. They don't strive. They don't struggle. They don't strain. It's not a battle. They're not there going, come on, baby, we can do it. Oh, it's so hard, man. I just want some fruit. Come on. Be fruitful. Come on, multiply, baby. It doesn't work that way. What happens? You plant the seed, you give it water, you give it sun, and you feed it, and the fruit naturally comes. God has planted the seed of his Holy Spirit in the heart of every single believer. It is fed through the word of God. It is watered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you allow the sun, the S-O-N, the Son of God, to shine on you, and you will naturally bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. God does that as you submit yourself to him. He causes your life to bear fruit. God's role in sanctification. Now, we also need to play a hands-on active role in the sanctification. It's not as though we're just born again and so now we're placed in Christ. Okay, that's true, that's good. But we also are a brand new creation. Okay, that's true, that's good. And now we don't have to do anything at all. Yes, we are just watered by the Spirit, fed by the Word, illuminated by the Son of God, the seed of the Spirit implanted in us. But we need to, in our Christianity, engage. Remember, Jesus did not grab the man's hand and stretch it out. He told him to exercise his faith and to stretch it out. Romans chapter 6, we're still here. Verse 6 again for memory, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 14 is a good one. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So Paul knew that. He told him positionally, practically, that's where you're at. But he knew that as long as we're in this body and on this earth until final sanctification, until we die, there is still going to be a battle going on against sin. And so he tells them in verse 11. Look now in Romans 6, 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Listen to what he says. Consider or reckon yourself or believe yourself to be dead to sin and do not let sin reign in your body. Now comes our active role. We need to put into practice in our lives what God has made true. We need to put into practice the fact that we are dead from sin. We don't just say it, we believe it, and we act upon it. And we do not let sin reign in our lives. Now we begin to see that we play a role and an active role in the process of sanctification. How do we do it? Growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, following his example, being conformed into his image, and through being obedient to Jesus Christ. Anytime God calls you to do something and you obey him, whether he calls you to lay something down and let something go or to be free of this or to go and do that, a positive or a negative, whatever it might be, every time that you obey him and do what he says to do, you are actively engaging in and participating in this thing of sanctification, daily growing in holiness. The Christian is to pursue holiness. It's to be active and not passive. In every situation that comes our day, in every decision, we are to say, will this cause me to grow in holiness? What is going to bring about further usefulness for me in the kingdom of God, in God's hands? What is going to make me be conformed more into the image of Christ? Is it if I do this or I do that? And now we have a guide for decision making. Knowing that the goal is, that we'd be more like Jesus Christ. Now we say, okay, I want to be sanctified. I want to be set apart. What is my role? And so in the daily decisions, we participate in sanctification. Part of it is passive. Part of it is active. 
The passive part is there just submitting ourselves to God continually. Just coming before him and saying, here I am, God, do that work in me. I hope you pray this in the morning. I hope you pray this every morning when I wake up. I say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit today and help me not to be such a chump. Change me from the inside out. Lord, help me in that area. Forgive me from this. God, help me. Now that's active, but it's passive in the sense that we are asking God to accomplish that work of daily sanctification in us. We're saying, God, here I am. You do that work. And we know that he does that. And there's some scripture references you could look at later. But the active part comes to us in several places in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, we're told to flee immorality. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you might want to look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, go there. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Now what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be friends with non-believers, not by any means. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Where did you find Jesus? Wherever the drunkards were, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the broken, the hurt, the needy, the sinful. That's where Jesus went. But Jesus was not like them. It's fine if you're a Christian to go the places where sinners go. As long as you're going to be like Jesus and not like them, we're called to be separate. Not because we don't like them, not because we don't love them, but because we are dead to that old life. We are dead to sin and we're alive to Jesus Christ and we have a new identity and we have a brand new nature and it makes no sense to get back in that coffin and be that dead guy. And so Jesus was with the drunkards and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, but he was not like them. I so often hear Christians say, well, I got to leave my friends and I got to do thus and so and the other. And I say, no, you don't. Not if you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, then be with them and be a representative of Jesus Christ and be like Jesus to them. How will they know if you don't go? We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. And so we are to be among them in proximity, but we are to come out from their midst and be separate in behavior because we are separate in identity and we are separate in nature. And so the goal of the Christian life is to bring the practical in line with the positional, that we are in Christ to bring our practical daily decisions in line with that reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There it is. You see, your role in sanctification is not to get in the back seat, kids, up at Thunderbolt. That's your role. You don't go climbing back there. You don't climb back there and say, Oh, Lord, keep me from impurity. It says here, cleansing ourselves from all defilement of flesh. 
You get out of the car. You get out of the proximity. It is dumb. It is super dumb if you struggle with alcohol to go eat pretzels in a bar. Go get pretzels somewhere else. You're walking by a bar and, oh, man, I, I don't want to drink, but I remember they got the free pretzels in there, man, and they got the free peanuts, and once in a while they got these other little hors d'oeuvres, and so I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to eat the peanuts and the pretzels. That's dumb. The Bible says flee that stuff. But you see, there's an active role. He had to stretch forth his hand. And so, obedience. We see that it is God who gives us the power to be obedient. But it is us who has to exercise that power and that faith. If you're a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit which is the power to walk according to his word and the power to be a witness. But unless you exercise it, you will never know it. You will never actualize it. You will never experience. You will never bring the practical in line with the positional. And so I ask you this morning, where are you right now in your daily walk with practical sanctification, practical holiness? Are you pursuing holiness or are you letting some things slide? Because I think the exhortation from the man in Mark chapter 3 this morning is that we need to actively engage. If God is calling you to do something, please do it. How silly it would be if that man had simply said, no, I'm not going to do that. And all of us would have said, what are you talking about? What are you doing, dummy? He'll heal you. Just stretch forth your hand. No, I don't know. It's too much for me, man. I can't handle it. Yes, you can. God's commandments are his enablements. Don't you know that? God's commandments are his enablements. Anytime God has commanded you to do something, he gives you the power by his Holy Spirit to do it. It is not Buddhism where there's some level set up here and it says just strive for it, just try to get it, but there's no power to attain it. That's dead religion. That's from the pit of hell. That is wrong. It is not that. It's God said, here's the standard and here's the power of my very Holy Spirit to walk according to it. He has not left us powerless, but he has given us power to walk. And so God's commandments are his enablement. So this morning, is he commanding you in something? Is he calling you out of a relationship? Is he calling you to go somewhere? Is he saying, you know what? It's been long enough. It's time to put that down. It's time to get rid of that. It's time to forgive that person for that. It's time to get over this. It's time, my child, to trust me with this. You need to get your hands off of that thing. You need to stretch forth your arm and let God do the healing work. How sad if he had remained like this when all he had to do to be healed was stretch forth his hand. All you need to do this morning is respond in obedience to that which God is calling you to do. And God will give you the power to do it. So here's what we're going to do. We've got plenty of time. We're going to take a couple minutes and just reflect. We're going to say, God, is there an area of my life that you are calling me to obedience in? And listen, friends, listen to me, please. Don't don't start shuffling and closing up your stuff yet. Listen to me. The moment the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, and he's going to reveal it to you as we seek him, the moment he reveals that to you, the enemy is going to try to come against you with every excuse in the world, with every justification. Here's why it's not that bad. Here's why it's okay. 
Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Listen, we're so silly as humans. We're more concerned about what people know than what God knows. We think because nobody knows about our sin that it's okay. God knows. Who cares what people know? They're just as sinful as you. They're just as sinful as me. They wouldn't be surprised. They do the same thing. But God knows. You'll remember from our text in Mark chapter 3, after Jesus healed the guy, the Pharisees conspired together with the Herodians to kill Jesus Christ. Those two in that political situation never would have been friends. But when God was on the move, enemies came together to come against his work. The moment you let God be on the move in your life and say, okay, God, I'm going to respond in obedience in this area, the enemy is going to come against you. Just know that. Just know that. But know that he is defeated foe. Know that God made a public spectacle of him upon the cross. Know that God has disarmed the rulers and the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. He has disarmed them. He has rendered them powerless. The only thing the enemy could do is just talk to you. He could just say, oh, no, no, you can never do it. You can never do it. You can never do it. And the moment you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I can do it, he's defeated. It's a done deal. So we're going to take a couple minutes. We're just going to meditate. You're going to ask the Lord. Maybe you need to write it down. It's just between you and him. And we're going to put feet to our faith. We're going to be actively engaged Christians. And we're going to say, okay, Lord, show me an area where I've been disobedient. And you're calling me to walk in sanctification. And then empower me to respond in obedience. And the moment you pray that prayer, it's a done deal. God gives you the power. It's up to you now. It's up to you. There's fear in this room. Because some of you know that you're going to lay down that thing one more time. And some of you are just absolutely positive. They're going to say, okay, God, I repent. I'm not, uh, not going to go there and do that anymore. And then you're going to walk out this door and you're going to fall into that same sin. And God's going to forgive you again. And God will give you the power to walk away from it again. Don't be defeated in that. Realize that it's a battle. Nobody walks into a battle, sees one bullet fly, and runs away. He realizes this is a battle. There's going to be some bullets. Listen, friends, there's a battle going on for sanctification, for holiness. There's going to be some bullets flying. There's going to be some carnage. Don't turn tail and run. Stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you fall, get up again and link arms with a brother or sister around you and say, you know what? I'm going to walk but I need your help to walk. That's the body of Christ. Amen.